So we are very blessed here in Santa Cruz to live near the ocean. This does not come as a surprise, I suspect, to any of you. And I know if you're like me, you probably don't get there enough, although maybe some of you are really good about it. And we walk along the beach, or we swim, or we surf, or probably might even be a few of you in here who've been diving in the Monterey Bay and explored the kelp beds, or or maybe in other parts of the ocean you've gone diving or snorkeling. And we know what an amazing place it is. And we go there to rest, or we go there to be nourished, or I know sometimes yesterday I was sitting near the ocean and felt like I was just letting the rhythm of the waves, you know, kind of come into my body and sustain me. And it's interesting because there's a passage in the suttas um, in which the Buddha talks about the ocean. As far as I know, somebody might know this better than I do, but I don't think the Buddha ever got near an ocean. You know, he lived in northern India and he was far away from it. So whether this is actually the words of the Buddha or not, I don't know. But there it is in the suttas. And in the sutta, he asks um, an asura, which is a kind of a divine being, sort of like a deva, but a different, a different class, a different family. And he, he asks them to describe the ocean. So this is what he says. I'm not going to read it every word because it'll take too long, but some of it. And he says, there are eight wonderful and marvelous qualities which they perceive in the ocean and by which reason they take delight in it. So this is why they really love the ocean. They say it slopes away gradually. It falls gradually, it inclines gradually, and this is a wonderful quality. And of course, if all you know about the ocean is walking in from the beach, you think that might be true. And it's stable, and it doesn't overflow its boundaries. And it doesn't tolerate a dead body, according to this list. Some of these, you know, you have to take some of this with a grain of salt, but it, it works as an interesting way to look at what we're going to talk about tonight. So what it's saying is that if something is dead in it, you know, like when you go down to the beach and there's birds and sometimes fish or something that have washed up on the shore. And it says, they say, the fourth thing is that when the great rivers go into the ocean, they lose their identity and they merge with the ocean. They're just part of the ocean. It's not the Mississippi or the Sacramento anymore. And um, and it's, and he, they say that there's no matter what happens, you know, if all the rain falls in and all the rivers go in, the, the size of the ocean seems to be pretty stable. It doesn't increase and doesn't decrease. It has only one taste, the taste of salt. And that in this ocean there are all kinds of wonderful and amazing substances pearls and stones and shells and all different kinds of things. And it's the abode of vast creatures. And then it has a whole list of things that I never 
knew about in ocean, but we know that there are vast creatures, right? There's blue whales and giant squids, and, and you go down to the aquarium any day of the week and you can see an amazing array of beings that live there in the ocean. So then the, the Buddha takes this description and he says, well, this is actually the monastic community or the practice community. So this community, he's saying it's really, it's, it's, it's like the ocean. And the ocean is like having a community that is bonded in its discipline of practice. And so he was talking to a community of monks. There weren't so very many communities of lay people in his day. Um, and we aren't a community of monks. But the image is actually kind of interesting to play with and I thought it would be worth reflecting on as we reflect on the, the nature of our community. And this was up for me a bit because of the community meeting that happened here last week. So I've been thinking a little bit about well, what is Sangha and why do we do it and what's, you know, what's helpful about it. And so this is really both about the community and about the nature of the training. And so he says, well, you know, it slopes away gradually. And, and he says, ours is a gradual training. And in fact, some of you have been around the practice long enough to remember Stephen Levine's first book, which was called A Gradual Awakening, right? And so that way in which, as you, as you practice it just slopes down in gradually, gradually. And some of you may have realized that perhaps as you came here, some of you might even be here for the first time tonight. You know, there's no sudden drop-off if you come to Vipassana Santa Cruz. You don't walk in the door and someone says, oh good, now we've got you and you're going to practice, you know, an hour every day, and you're going to do this, and you're going to do that. It's kind of gradual, it's kind of subtle. I mean, lots of people come and check us out, and we probably don't even know that they're here, hardly, or we see them a few times, and they come and go for a while. It's pretty easy to come in in a very, very gradual way. Come and check it out, see what's happening here at the meditation center, and ever since we've been in this location, we've had a lot of people who've seen the sign out in front and go, oh, there's a meditation center here, that's interesting, and then they come and, and they try it out. And so um, we're not insisting, and I don't know any centers around, Vipassana centers anyway, that insist on a certain level of practice or a certain depth of practice. Um, there's just not a lot of requirements. You're allowed just to kind of come in and go deep at any rate that, that you want to. And <clears throat> anyone is welcome. And then of course it does get deeper and that's as I was thinking about this today I was thinking about all my own practice it was quite interesting to me actually to come across this image because in my own practice I remember at one of the very first retreats I was sitting a long retreat I suddenly thought oh it feels like every day I'm, I'm like a stone and I'm just rolling down the slope in the bottom of the ocean and I'm just so it arose in my own unconsciousness, just exactly like this image, just going a little deeper and a little deeper and a little deeper each day, a little quieter, a little deeper, like that. And many of you know this place where where your practice has just gradually gotten deeper and deeper, and 
And I get to watch people do that as their practice deepens and different insights arise and their lives change. And I watch people, just as you might in the ocean, go into places that are kind of scary and frightening and then they discover that they can navigate them. And, and I see people soften and open. And it's, it's actually one of the wonderful things about being a, a teacher. And as this very gradual process of awakening happens... And then the, the second of these things was that it's safe. Well, the, the greater ocean isn't so safe, always. But that brought to mind for me a place that I often um, like to snorkel in when I'm on the big island of Hawaii, which is a giant tide pool. It's probably a tide pool that's at least as big as this building, maybe bigger, maybe the building and the parking lot. And it's very deep, and there's a whole bunch of fish in it. But there's no sharks and no currents and all of those things. So it's really safe. It's like, it's like snorkeling in a fish tank or something like that, a gigantic fish tank. So there are, and we know there are places like that in the ocean, right? In places where reefs and atolls protect a place, and it's very, very safe. And so this is a bit like that, like a, a safe place. And, and in the monastic community, the Buddha points out, it's the, it's the rules of the community that make it safe. You know, there's 227 precepts that a monk lives by, and so if you sign into that community, you know that that's the deal. You're going to live by those 227. And for most of us in, in this community, for many people, the precepts that we work with are the five training precepts. And even if you don't know what they are, and even if you haven't signed up in any way to work with them, Often, people who are drawn to this practice are living that way anyway, in a way that um, is non-harming, where the intention is one of kindness and compassion. And, and even if <clears throat> we don't always succeed, and I don't suppose any of us really does, we try. And, and the agreement that nothing gets taken. And I watched somebody come in tonight and leave their purse not where they're sitting. And I thought, oh, they're doing that. They're trusting that things are not going to be taken here. And, and it's really wonderful to be in a community where you can walk away from something and know that it will still be there. Which actually reminds me, there are two men's watches in the desk drawer <laughs> that people have been so trusting, they walked away and left them. And they've been sitting there for a while. So if you've been wondering where your watch is, you might want to check the drawer. <clears throat> so... So we, take, we agree that that's the kind of place this is going to be. And it's a place where um, it's safe sexually. You know, that you don't come here. It's not a pickup place. You don't expect to be harassed. You can come here and no one will bother you. And you can come here no matter what your arrangement is with your own sexuality. We have no gender issues. We have no sexual preference issues. Whatever you are, you're welcome here. And people know that they can come here and that will be all right. It's a place where we're careful with speech. We do our best to be mindful of speech, to be honest and beneficial and timely and compassionate. It's a place where, as we talked at the meeting last week, we're working on learning counsel, we're training more and more people to use that as a practice of mindful speech. And so we come here and you know that if, as you have conversations with people, you can kind of trust that. And um, even, even our meetings mostly, mostly, we do pretty well with, that, with the precepts on, on speech. 
And then, of course, it's a, a community where um, it's not about intoxication, it's about clarity. And so where clarity is valued and encouraged, which isn't always so common in our culture. So it's a place of refuge. It's like one of those tide pools or a harbor where you can come in and rest. Now, the bit about expelling dead bodies, I thought, hmm, you know. Because, of course, in a monastic community, if you don't behave or if you don't follow the rules, there are actually four really solid reasons for which you can be expelled from a monastic community. I'm not sure I even remember all of them. Um, but one is overt sexual activity outside, and I think there's three or four others. But actually, there's only four, which is kind of interesting. Uh, all the rest, you know, you can kind of clean up your act and stay. But one of the things, one of the things that the Buddha says, um, is he makes the point that there are people, you know, there, I'm sure there are people who come here and they go, "This is not for me." You know, they want maybe they want a practice that's more exuberant. You know, it's not that they don't want to practice, they just, they don't want to, they don't want this kind of silence. They want Sufi dancing or something of that sort. Or, or some people come and they're just not into practice. I mean, probably everybody here knows people who just are not interested in things spiritual. And so they come here and it's like the community doesn't work for them and they don't stay. They leave after a while. And, and the Buddha says, um, there's a way in which even if someone is seated in the community, they're not really connected to it, you know, and so the, the they don't quite stick. And then he said that this is the ocean, is the place where these great rivers come in and they lose their names. They lose their names. The mighty rivers, the Ganges, the Mahi, the Sacramento, the Mississippi, the Hudson, reach the great ocean. And, and he says... So in a community like this, when you come in, who you are out there is not particularly important. It's not important. And you, you know how much money you make or what your title is or where you are at the university or where you aren't at the university or whatever is just not what we're about here. And you set all that aside at the door. At retreats, there's a wonderful teaching that says there's no one to be. So when you walk in this door, it's actually a great blessing. You don't have to bring that with you. You just come in as someone who is interested in the teachings of the Buddha and who wants to learn how to practice just like every other bit of the ocean here. It, all of that doesn't, doesn't count for here. The rest of that teaching is there's no one to be, there's nowhere to go, and there's nothing to do. So you get to, you actually come in here for a little bit and, and just get to be for an hour and a half. And then in the, the next piece, he says he's commenting on the steadiness of the ocean, that there's no increase or decrease, no matter how much goes in. And I thought, well, what could that possibly mean? And I checked one of the, the notes on it. And it says, even if no one achieves nirvana, not a, during this immeasurable eons, 
it cannot be said that the, that nibbana is empty. So he's saying that the ocean is like nibbana in this case. It can't be said that the ocean is empty. And even, it says, on the other hand, if in the lifetime of a Buddha, during one meeting, innumerable beings attain to the deathless, one cannot say it has become full. So it doesn't empty and it doesn't fill. It's just always there, this this place of practice and sustenance. So you don't have to be in a rush and you don't have to worry, you know, if all those hooks get enlightened, there won't be any left for me. (laughs) Or you don't have to think, well, maybe nobody's getting enlightened now. He's just saying it's always there. You know, there's 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 um, awakening to be had. And then he says, it's of one taste. And that's an amazing teaching, to begin to think that everything that we do here is about liberation. There's nothing that you can do in this place, or in your life for that matter, that isn't about liberation if you hold it that way. Because the question always is, Where is the place of freedom in this particular moment? So if you're in here mopping floors, is there a way to do that that's out of the place of freedom? Absolutely. If you're baking cookies for everybody to eat in the next 20 minutes, is there a place of freedom in that? Absolutely. If you're sitting, yes, of course. If you come to do sutta study or some other class or something of that sort... There's also a place of freedom there. And so it's all about really beginning to understand that that place of freedom is there, that the entire ocean of practice is all of one taste. And there's no practice that's, in a very real way, more about liberation than any other practice. So that's a pretty amazing thing to begin to think about. And then he goes on to say, There are so many precious things. And, you know, I don't know how many pages and volumes of Buddhist teachings there are, suttas, you know, all of the different collections of suttas from the teachings of the Buddha. I've heard heard 88,000 pages at one point, so let's take that, it's a nice number. And then, of course, if you add all the books and gateways and, and Amazon, if you click on Buddhist books and all of that, you know, endless, 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 huge quantities of teachings. And all of them, some of them probably better teaching than other, others, but all of them often very valuable and many different flavors. So, you know, we could go around and probably have an interesting evening. Who's your favorite Buddhist author? You know, and some people will like this person, and some people will like that person, and the people who like this person won't find that person quite so useful. Some people love sutta study, they just can hardly wait to read more Buddhist texts, and are busy learning Pali so they can do it in the original language, and other people don't want to go near suttas, it's not very interesting, it's boring and it's dry. And it's all there. And so many, many, many different forms of practice. So again, I think in a community like this that's really helpful to begin to see that because it's so easy to do the comparing mind, right? And so maybe your neighbor is into doing three-month retreats. He or she has done seven three-month retreats and they're signing up for a full year pretty soon and you're thinking, wow, 
you know, they must be really enlightened. And maybe what you're doing is daily life practice. You're raising a child, you know, and you're changing diapers and vacuuming and doing endless crackers and peanut butter and all of that. And that's your teacher. And it's just as can be just as serious and important to practice. And so it's very, very helpful to begin to see that there are there are so many precious things in this ocean. But then also the Buddha points out there's a lot of interesting beings in the ocean. So look around the room. Because these are some of the interesting beings who are in the ocean with you. You know, the squids and the sunfish and the sea turtles and the great whales and all of those. And just for fun, I just happened to read about one this morning that I thought might demonstrate the point. This is a fish that's known as a barrel eye. They have bizarre tubular eyes that point upwards. The eyes are good at spotting quarry silhouetted against the dim light above, but they can't see what's right in front of the mouth. <laughs> so they finally caught one and they realized that it can actually turn its eyes so that it can see in front of the mouth. <clears throat> but rounding out the barrel eyes peculiarity, they noticed that it has a transparent fluid-filled dome covering the top of its head. Can you imagine? Too fragile to have survived when specimens have been less gently caught and they think it might protect the eyes from the stings of jellyfish. So there's some pretty weird creatures down there, right? I mean, we know this. And we've all enjoyed, you know, the National Geographic pictures of the strange things that come up from the bottom of the ocean and or the pictures that get taken way down in the deep and there's this very weird-looking fish or something hanging there in the dark. And we think, oh my goodness, you know, I'm glad I didn't meet that in an alley on a dark night. And it's, it's such a wonderful image because it really, I think, is so important in a community like ours or in the monastic community or in the greater Dharma community to remember that we have that variety of beings. And some of us are pretty weird. We are. (laughs) We are. You You might not be able to see the transparent dome on the top of my head, but it might be there. So so to to come to this with with that same kind of appreciation, right? We we love it about the ocean, that there's weird people. We don't always like it that there's weird people in our community, but there are. So to really bring that same sense of openness and expansiveness to our to our experience as we practice. So I think that's about all I have to say to really invite you maybe the next time you're at the beach to look at the ocean and to reflect on this amazing ocean that is so vast and so steady and has many, many sheltered places and many wonderful things and many interesting creatures and to realize that um, that there's a way to look at that and enjoy it and then to realize that perhaps our Dharma community and particularly the greater Dharma community is also very like that. So I think I'll stop there and see if you have questions or 
comments, our wonderings about strange beings. But we won't take any specific comments about the strange being next year tonight. Are we ready to go for a walk by the ocean? Probably, yeah. Quick before it gets dark. Does it make sense? It's beautiful. So let me also ask, since this is the first Thursday of the month and it is intended to be a beginner-friendly sitting, are there any practice questions that came out of the instructions or that you brought with you tonight that you would like clarified? Is anybody here tonight new who's willing to admit it? (laughs) Maybe not. Please. I'm going to go back to your talk a little bit. Please. I, I speak up for a second. Only one second. <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was a, uh, important to I didn't catch the analogy of the medical the precepts and the. I was talking about it being a place of refuge. The refuge. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Which it gets a little tricky with the ocean because. We know more about the ocean, I think, than the Buddha did, so <laughs> we know it's not always a refuge. But there are places in it that are. <clears throat> it's a little kind of fun to catch the Buddha out a little bit. Like he didn't really know about oceans. So please, Mai. I particularly I did my period of retreat um, when I was gone last month I um, worked a lot with some Dharma talks from Ajahn Pasano up at Abayagiri and they were all about mindfulness of breathing so I've been playing with that one a bit myself which is it's really up for me very helpful yeah. okay oh please um, I just I really like what you said about um you know, you, you compare the person who does all these three-month retreats and, and the year-long retreat versus, um, you know, the rest of us who do our life practice. Because um, I think the life practice is, in many ways, a lot more challenging than mm-hmm. um, sitting a silent retreat. Because mm-hmm. it, it's still... Um, it still brings you up against all those places... Um, where you where you get stuck mm-hmm. um, it's it's just it's much harder I think to keep that state of mindfulness so that we notice that we're stuck yeah, I, I mean my own sense is the two are very complementary and that if you end up doing nothing but three month retreats for all of your life I mean Trungpa Rinpoche used to talk about the spiritual bypass, that you're maybe avoiding something. But on the other hand, 
sitting a retreat can actually deeply settle the mind or open the mind to some new things that then when you bring that <coughs> back into your everyday life can be really helpful so both are true yeah Okay, so let me make just a few announcements and then we can have our tea and I think Lael baked cookies as part of her practice. <laughs> so um, just to mention, there are there's now a new batch, the newest issue of The Inquiring Mind. And if any of you don't receive it at home or would like an extra one to give to a friend, there's a stack out on the table. Um I believe there is one bed for a man available left for our retreat. So if any man is here tonight who would like to sit that retreat from May 20th to 25th at Land of Medicine Buddha, um, you should take one of these flyers, which are over on the table, and get in touch with Martin Carver, and, and all that information is there, and find out about it. Um, and if anybody, male or female, is going, oh, gosh, I really wanted to sit that retreat, I would strongly recommend that you get in touch with them anyway because often we have some cancellations at the last minute. And so if you're sitting there and you're ready to go, um, we are happy to take you. So get, take, again, take one of those flyers and get in touch. There's a number of other flyers. I think the only thing to, that is important to mention is that a week from tomorrow night, we're having the last of our Buddhist teachers in Santa Cruz series, and the monks from Tankulu Kava'ai are coming here, some of them from Boulder Creek, along with a translator. Um, Bob Stahl, who lived there for a long time, is also going to be here to help lead that evening. And um, I think it will be a really interesting evening. And it's really exciting that they're coming here. We haven't. They haven't been here. Um, I believe they're going to. Bob said when he was here on Tuesday with me that he what they are going to do a chant that will bring life to the Buddhas. So this is quite wonderful. It's time our Buddhas were alive, and um, and they they just you know it's been interesting. We've been here for a long time, and they've been there for a long time, and we just don't connect. So finally, it's going to happen. So I hope that many of you will come and hear them and hear what they have to say. Um, and then last but not least, in addition to the Donna Baskets for supporting the teachers, which we talked about last week a lot, and supporting the Sangha, there's a third basket. I think, did the third one get out? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. And it says scholarship on it. And if you would like to, if you, particularly if you're going to the retreat, not going to the retreat, and you would like to support someone going, um, it's a really great way to have a sense that someone's sitting for you on the retreat, sort of a designated sitter. And um, any amount helps. So even you know, if you can give generously, that's great. And if you can't, even a little bit, you know, it adds up, right? And um, it's a great way to support other people coming to that retreat. So. Anything else that I've neglected? Uh, I did think we have Bill Coleman over here, who's our treasurer. We are, I think, in need of a few more people to collect Donna envelopes at different sittings. And Michelle's done it here. Um, We have somebody who does it on Tuesday, but I think we've only got a couple of people right now. 
and we could really use some more. So it's a it's a pretty simple thing where you take them and then you have to fig- fill out a sheet. It takes it's a little time consuming, but not a lot. True. True. And I don't I don't want to lie here. And if you would like to offer some service to the community. Um, that would be really wonderful. And I thought maybe since Bill is the money person, if you would just get your name to him, he will get it to the right person and um, go like that. So let him know. He's hiding out over in the corner here, but um, he'll do it. Or you can ask, you can give it to me, or you can probably give it to Ann Spig, who's back there, who's the president of the board, and we'll get the names off to the right place. Okay. Let's end with a little bit of metta. So I actually have a couple of specific metta requests. One actually is for Leslie, whose the memorial service for her husband is happening on Saturday, and so we've all been sending lots of metta, and I know you will continue to. One is for Dana, who in another week is getting married. Brave woman. (laughs) <laughs> and so I think sending her a little extra metta would be great tonight and any other metta requests either for yourself or please um, those of you who uh, are aware of um, some of the special needs of our homeless community it's been a particularly painful week we had over a half dozen deaths wow. um, this last Week, several of them by suicide, and I just ask that we hold in meta some of the particular needs of those people who can be invisible or even seen as a nuisance in our community, and that hold that humanity. Mm. Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else? Okay, a little joy, a little sorrow. Life, huh? So take a breath. <clears throat> and let your attention come back into your own being as you sit, breathing. And in some simple way, extend goodwill and kindness into your own body. You can use an image. You can use a phrase that extends kindness. May I be happy. I'm fine just the way I am. Whatever sounds like goodwill and kindness to you. Or you can just breathe goodwill and kindness through your body, through your being. Let yourself become aware of sitting in this community of beings, all of these other creatures of our ocean. And extend your goodwill around the room to all of the people here, the people in front of you and behind you, the people who needed to leave early, the people who are still here. Please extend your goodwill and friendliness to Dana and to Leslie and her family, holding this community 
with kindness and friendliness, with with grandmotherly love. And then let your attention move out, perhaps first to include the homeless community and all of the many people who try to help them, extending our goodwill and our compassion to them. To all of the people whom we know and love out there, our family and friends and colleagues, And then letting our goodwill, our compassion, our kindness go on out to all people everywhere, to all of the creatures of the earth and the air and the water, to all beings in every direction, in every realm, to all beings in the universe, even the beings that we can't possibly imagine. Meeting each being with goodwill, with friendliness. And then last of all, we gather up the merit of our practice together this evening, and we offer this merit, this blessing, to all of these beings, that all beings may come to awakening, not one left behind. Maybe before you get up, greet somebody sitting near you and get to know who they are for just a second. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.